The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode of Rational Security for May 29, 2022. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare decided to cross-post this week's episode of Rational Security, a weekly roundtable podcast featuring Quinta Jurassic, Scott R. Anderson, and Alan Z. Rosenstein. It's a lively and irreverent discussion of news, ideas, foreign policy, and law. There's also always a laugh. Today's episode is entitled Rational Security 2.0, the Walk of Shane edition. In the episode, Jurassic, Anderson, and Rosenstein were joined by Shane Harris to talk about the week's biggest national security news, including the recent House public hearing on unidentified aerial phenomena, Biden's statement confirming that the United States would defend Taiwan against Chinese aggression, and more. This is Rational Security. So, Alan, a little bird told me that today is your birthday. It is. Happy birthday to me. Happy I'm one birthday. year, one year Happy long birthday, on the long glide path to death. That's the spirit. You're assuming it's a long glide path. No. <laughs> that's, that's not always the same assumption yeah. these days, buddy. You and Queen Elizabeth. I, I neither sleep nor exercise enough. You're right. You're right. Do you feel older, Alan? I do. I mostly just feel like since I had a kid, I have, I have satisfied my cosmic function and so it's just yes you know you can go now i that's right just just save some more for college and then (laughs) shuffle off this mortal coil wait wait leave the money then you can go exactly scott do you did you not did you did you feel like that when you had when you had your kid i do i like my mortality like really hangs over me now my own mortality i think about a lot other people's mortality all of your mortalities. It's really just like sometimes sometimes you wish for our mortality. It all, all depends <laughs> yeah, on how really this conversation's not. going. Hang on may not be the right verb there, but something. I think about it a lot. And it's just a kind of effort present sort of thing in my day now. We went to the death route real fast. Do you have here. thoughts on when I'm dying? I hope not. <laughs> you're gonna outlive us all. You and Queen Elizabeth. I have deep That's thoughts right. about how you're going to die, Shane. <laughs> not about when. You're gonna be beamed up. <laughs> yes. I'm gonna go in a probe gone wrong. <laughs> Shane, I always thought of you as like falling into a large vat of artisanal batch cocktail. And like oh, that's yes. how you go, right? Isn't that would yes. that be appropriate? I think that would be just fine. I would I could drown in like an aged gin martini or something. Mm-hmm. Quinta will obviously be eaten by a houseplant. 
I always imagine myself like the guy in the Twilight Zone episode who survives the nuclear apocalypse and then breaks his glasses so he can't read any of the books. Ooh. I feel like that's me. Oh, man. <laughs> Qu- Quinta, I-, I tend to think of you as that Twilight Zone where it ends with someone running around yelling, it's a cookbook, it's a cookbook. It's very on point for today's episode. Yes. You just Google Twilight Zone, it's a cookbook, and, and you will you will see. Oh, you should have just said the title. Okay. Now I know what you're talking about. Wait, wait, what's the title? I forgot the title. To Serve Man. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yes, 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 to serve man. <laughs> you think it's like a book on public service by Jim Comey, but no. <laughs> <laughs> what if we could get a quote for him when we finally release our Raw Fair cookbook? And his quote is just, it's a cookbook, it's a cookbook. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rational Security No Way Home, because I am your co-host, Scott R. Anderson, far from home at a vacation locale, uh, far to the south of our usual Washington, D.C. hangs. I'm here with my two co-hosts, Alan Rosenstein. Hello. And Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And while none of us can go home again, sometimes we like to try for you, the Rational Security listener, because we have a little blast from the past for you. None other than host emeritus or co-host emeritus, as Benjamin Wittes insisted is now your official title, Shane Harris. Shane, thank you so much for joining us here today. Hello. That was my little throwback. (laughs) I did model this script that I use for this so expressly on what Shane used to do to the point that I think I've stolen your inflection on certain points I, in a very unnatural like a way. Yeah, no, it's good. I like it. Is it weird? Is it like looking at the back of your head, Shane? <laughs> <laughs> it's an out-of-body experience, but not an unpleasant one. Scott, definitely the way you end the podcast with the goodbye. Goodbye. It's very, exactly. very Shane. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's good. It's, it's like osmosis. It's just transmitted to you through the ages, like an oral tradition. <laughs> I think it starts off, it started off very Shane, and I'm increasingly getting Count Chocula. <laughs> and eventually it's just going to get to the point where it's an increasingly more outlandish accent. But I'm okay with that. It's okay, guys. Nobody listens to the end of the podcast anyway. We know you turn it off when the credits roll. It's, it's okay. We're it's okay with that. Scott and Anderson's progression from Shane Harris to Count Chocula to Borat. That's the that's, that's where this Good, is all leading. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> this is thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Exactly. <laughs> Well, we are excited to have our co-host Emeritus here with us for what we are calling the Walk of Shane edition, because we will all be exiting here uh, with some second guesses about some of the things we've said, I have no doubt, over the next hour, (laughs) as we dig through some of the week's big national security news stories, including a few of which that Shane has been at the cutting edge of, and we're excited to talk to him about. First topic being one of these, first topic is, we want to believe. The House recently held a rare public hearing on what the government knows about unidentified aerial phenomena, or UAPs, also commonly called unidentified flying objects, or UFOs. What do we learn about UAPs, and how is U.S. policy towards them changing? Topic two, strategic incongruity. President Biden once again said the United States would defend Taiwan against Chinese aggression only to have the White House staff roll back his statement and confirm that there has been no change in the longstanding U.S. policy of strategic ambiguity on exactly that issue. Can this policy survive the president's repeated statements to the contrary? And if so, what's replacing it? And topic three, getting thirsty in Hungary. The premier U.S. conservative organization CPAC is holding a part of its annual conference in Hungary, where far-right leader Viktor Orban called for a transnational conservative movement in his opening remarks. 
what will this budding relationship mean for the future of far-right movements both here and abroad? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So I'm going to turn around and hand it straight over to Shane, who is oh, yeah. Lawfare's, uh, Lawfare's chief extraterrestrial correspondent. Mm-hmm. So what is going on? What happened at this hearing? What have we learned? And most importantly, Shane, on a scale from one to 10, how excited are you? Oh, I'm, I'm easily a 15 uh, at this hearing. You know, it takes a lot to get me riled up at a congressional hearing, at a subcommittee hearing, no less. But this one, let me tell you, I was up early. I was up early for this, making sure my connection was right. Maybe I should go in person to the hearing room in case the live stream fails for some reason. Um, <clears throat> so this was this was last week. This was a House Intelligence Committee subcommittee on uh, counterintelligence and a lot of counters. There were like three different counters. It's like the countertop subcommittee. But what was notable about this is it featured testimony from two senior Pentagon officials. One, the official in charge of counterintelligence and security at the Pentagon, and the other, who was the deputy director of naval intelligence, talking about UAPs, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, or UFOs, more commonly known. And while they didn't really break any new news, and I can just go over a couple of high points of what they did say that was sort of new, the really key takeaway of this is that this is the first time that U.S. government officials have testified in public about what the government knows about UFOs in more than 50 years. So the last time we heard any testimony on the subject from officials was back in the days of Project Blue Book, which was the Air Force investigation into UFO sightings, which was closed decades ago. So this testimony follows on the heels of last summer's report from the intelligence community that was kind of the big reveal to date on what the U.S. government knows about these these unidentified objects that have been cited mostly by military personnel, particularly naval aviators. And you guys will probably remember on that one, uh, it was basically like there were these 140-some events, and some of them that just could not be explained, sort of went into this category of, it's not a U.S. aircraft, it's not a foreign aircraft, it's not a weather phenomenon, it's just sort of unexplained. And so the officials were there at this most recent hearing to basically, you know, put a public face and a government face on this whole new posture that the military and the intelligence community have been striking, which is to not sweep UFO sightings under the rug, but to talk about them publicly. And I think they had two goals in mind. One was communicating it to the American public, like, look, we're taking this seriously. We're not hiding things from you. You know, we don't have an alien in the basement of the Pentagon, sadly. And also, I think to kind of transmit the message as well to people in the military and the intelligence community in the government that, you know, the attitude now, and this has been true for a few years, is that if you see something, say something, right? If you are a, you know, an F-18 pilot who has a close encounter, literal, and there have been some close ones, then you should come back and report that and not be afraid that you're going to be stigmatized or ridiculed or that your, you know, your senses or your sanity might be questioned, which are all the reasons why pilots historically and others have not reported these things. And the government wanted to make very clear, we are not saying that extraterrestrials have visited the earth. What we are saying is that there are things out there that our personnel are observing, they can't identify them, and they could be threats to national security. And I think now that like that whole comfortable umbrella of national security has been placed over the whole UFO discussion, it's just so much easier for folks to talk about it, right? Because now you can have like these very, you know, serious sober guys going up and talking about UFOs. Like you couldn't dream of something like that having happened. 
years ago. But as we know, that's why there's a podcast about it. Once you call it a national security threat, you can talk about it. So, Shane, as you pointed out, the government isn't saying that there are UFOs, but all I care about is what Shane Harris is saying. Do you think, based on all of this, that there are UFOs? What what is have your priors changed, let's put it that way, on whether or not UFOs or UAPs are visible? Are you asking me, do I think there are UFOs or do I think there are ETs? Ooh, well, both. Do you believe, Shane? That's what we want to know. What does your poster on your wall say? Hang I mean, in there, we, Kitty? I mean, we all know I believe, right? Here's what I think. Look, there is no evidence that any of these unidentified phenomena are extraterrestrial in nature. I mean, we're very far from that. Let's be very clear. Now, do I personally believe there's other intelligent life in the universe? Yes. I think it's crazy not to believe that, actually. We can have a whole discussion about that. Do we have evidence of that? Absolutely not. And should we be saying that even some of these strange and extraordinary sightings of, you know, capsule-shaped objects that are seemingly defying the laws of physics and known properties of aerodynamics, that therefore they are aliens? Absolutely not. We should not be saying that. And actually, I think that as much as I love to have fun with this, that leaping to the conclusion that it must be extraterrestrial in nature actually is counterproductive to the discussion, which actually has been a very sober and objective inquiry. And, you know, I've said this before publicly that I think, you know, give the intelligence community some credit for having the guts to say, like, look, there are these objects. They're doing really, really amazing, unusual things. We don't know what they are. We don't think they're sensor malfunctions, but we just don't know what they are. So my priors haven't really changed in that respect. And I think importantly, like the hearing seemed designed not to advance the discussion all that much. You know, like you could tell, like it was this very funny moment in the beginning where Ron Moultrie, who's the undersecretary of defense for, for intel and security, um, who used to be at NSA and is just a very sober, thoughtful guy, very seasoned government leader, you know, he can like kind of like sense like, you know, as I put it in the story, like the 500 pound alien sitting in the middle of the room or possibly hovering above it, which by God, that line survived editing. And I am proud of that. I was going to say, your editor let you keep that? He let me keep it. I'm very proud of that. In the beginning, he said like, well, you know, I just want to admit, you know, I myself am a science fiction fan. And, you know, I maybe even have gone to a few conventions, although I didn't necessarily dress up. <laughs> necessarily address that, but he goes, and he goes, got to break the ice somehow. And you could feel people kind of, kind of go like, ah, okay, good, you know. We're like, and like, it's the he didn't inhale version of being a UFO. Yeah. And but it kind of like, and once that was like settled, they were like no longer like we could just get the alien thing off our back for us to start with. And then the whole conversation really was about national security threats, but it didn't go much beyond. And importantly, it didn't go much beyond what the government has already said. Like they did reveal one new piece of footage, which, you know, was interesting of this sort of spherical reflective object zipping past the cockpit of an F-18. And you really can't tell what it is. In fact, lawmakers tried to get the, the official who presented it to go back and pause on the frame where you could see the object. And he, like, it was like so hard to get it to pause in just the right spot. It was comical. Maybe come with a still photo next time. But like it was, there was really nothing else much to say. He, they did report that there had been 11 near misses with U.S. aircraft and UAPs, which was interesting, but no crashes. On questioning, they said they'd never tried to communicate with one or fired on one, which was interesting. But it, the whole thing seemed more designed as a public demonstration of the government's commitment to talking openly about this and not as a way to break news. So 
no, to your question, Alan, if my priors changed, no. And, and, and nor did, I should say, the government didn't take any moves to try and make people be less worried about these potential national security threats. If anything, I think they wanted to kind of like elevate that concern a bit, which is a way of, you know, being able, again, to talk about it. And the fact that I think many people do regard these things as, you know, potentially threatening when you've got stuff zipping around aircraft carriers and airplanes and you don't know what it is. And it's not obviously a foreign government technology. That's concerning. So I actually think one of the most interesting exchanges is something that you hit on in your piece on the hearing, Shane, was this exchange they had about underwater phenomenon where somebody, I can't remember who it was, posed the presented the question, hey, have you ever had or do you have any ability to detect whether there is these things are also happening underwater? It's actually kind of a sensible question for real sci-fi nerds. I think they will know, oh, we're asking this because there is a like sci-fi theory that what if these things aren't really aliens? What if there's some species that lives deep under the seas where we have no ability to know whether they're there or not? I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, it's like a very established like, kind of like sci-fi pseudoscience theory out there. It's if you Cthulhu. watch the History Channel a lot between 1998 and 2000, and four, like I did, you will see a lot of specials on this exact theory. Oh, oh, that bastion of serious documentaries, the freaking history channel. You mean Chuck Grassley's favorite channel? <laughs> oh, exactly. God. It's wonderful. I learned so much about the pyramids, particularly. But what I thought was interesting about it, they said essentially, hey, hold this for the classified hearing because there's a classified counterpart to this. We'll talk about it there. Presumably, I'm guessing that's not because at that hearing, they're suddenly like, oh, you know, guys, there are totally aliens out there. Sorry, they're just all underwater. We just didn't want to to spit that one out there. Instead, I think it's because they didn't want to give away sensitive information about how they detect these things, because that also probably is used to detect Chinese and Russian submarines and a sort of other things. But that really gets at like a perennial problem in this area, which is that we probably are not the only country having these sorts of phenomena, right? Like probably every other country in the world, at least every other major military power that has like sensors deployed around the world to detect aerial objects are having experiences like this, but it's really hard to talk about and share information at with any granularity precisely because all the technology used to detect these things, record these things is dual purpose. It's the same thing you use for identified flying objects of the sort you're worried about shooting you or spying on you or bombing you. And this is a real like international obstacle that if we're actually going to make progress on determining what these things are, we actually probably need to find some way past if we can to say, how do we find a way to share information that's of granularity and detail enough without worrying that we're compromised our national security? Or maybe we just have to accept we may be compromising it to some extent, but it may help us really understand what these phenomena are that may actually end up being a much greater threat to national security. We just don't know. I mean, it, it reminds me of uh, the movie Arrival, which I think came out, what, like 2015, 2014? Uh, no, 2016, because okay. it was right after the election. Yeah. yeah, and looks now, I mean, just impossibly optimistic about human nature because it involves, you know, collaboration across the world to figure out how to communicate with, with aliens, which in 2016 had a, a sort of, you know, elegiac quality and in 2022 is sort of so distant as to be almost laughable, right? Like the, the, the far more realistic situation is that none of us help each other out and we never get anywhere because we won't talk to one another. Yeah, I totally agree. And the best part about that movie too, right, is that, I mean, it, it's both them cooperating, but at the end, the protagonist has to make it of particular interest to the Chinese official too. Like she has to hook into his life too. So it's like, you two, you, we both want similar things. Yeah, I, and I, I can't. I, I I was struck by that in a way watching the hearing as well, thinking this is all U.S. government information, and is there any effort to try and collaborate with others? And w notably, 
you know, if you go back through the sort of the history of UAPs, one of the first big public reports about this was something called the Cometa Report, um, which was a French product. And the French government and some European governments tend to be just a little more open about this kind of thing. Maybe it's because they have fewer sources and methods to divulge, but there seems to be less of a cultural stigma there. Um, Leslie Kane, who is one of the big groundbreaking journalists on all this, she's the one who helped break the story in the New York Times a few years back that the Pentagon had that secret office that was studying UAPs. I interviewed her for the Chatter podcast a couple months ago, and, you know, and she wrote a book on this in which she talked to people in the Iranian government, I mean, other government officials, commercial aircraft pilots have seen things like this. So there really is a kind of a body of information out there. Uh, the challenge has generally been that the information, the reports are not standardized, which makes it really hard to analyze them. But, but I agree with you, Quinta. It's like, I think the hopes that for some kind of international collaborative effort to study these kinds of things, you know, now doesn't seem very hopeful at all. Uh, and that's too bad because there's probably a lot that we could learn from what other countries have seen, particularly in countries where maybe they are just a little bit more open about this kind of thing and don't have the same cultural hangups that we do. Yeah, that'll come once once we have a global effort to eradicate COVID. It's it's oh, next gosh. on the list. It'll be totally Yeah, fine. it's right after that. Right after that and also stopping a worldwide famine from Ukrainian grain being blocked up in port. Yeah. More people may believe that UFOs are a threat than COVID. So we may be able to make progress on this, guys. Let's not rule it out. How do you know that the UFOs didn't bring to COVID? Exactly. Listen, Chinese UFOs. the Intel community <laughs> has studied this question too. Still inconclusive, my friends. <laughs> Shane, one last question on this, just in terms of domestically, we know there's no international consensus, but is this move towards more transparency and kind of like normalizing and routinizing acknowledgement of UAPs and a willingness to bring them forward? Is this something that is a politically driven initiative or that is, or is it something that there's buy-in both politically on both sides of the Hill and on inside the civil service, particularly inside the military, that frankly, its culture is going to dominate how much of this actually gets disclosed. I know there was obviously legislation that was included in the last NDAA that had bipartisan sponsorship, but not necessarily super broad, but it got through the NDAA process that did kind of like, you know, essentially established a special DOD office, some reporting requirements, things like that. Nothing major, but like notable, I think. Is that something that Congress is foisting on the executive branch? Or is there a general consensus across the professionals who work in the space and Democrats and Republicans that this is a trajectory we should be moving in, meaning it's going to exist and continue even if Congress changes hands or if there's a different president in the White House? I mean, I've always gotten the sense that historically this is something that's been fairly driven by the Congress. I mean, Harry Reid, when he was alive, was a big backer of this, you know, for the Pentagon to investigate it. And, and, and you know, and, and I will say the Pentagon's giving it much more senior level attention now than it did at the time when this, you know, the Leslie Kane article I alluded to earlier, when that office was in the Pentagon, it wasn't really a super high level kind of operation. And, and so I think that there's been a lot of, pushed by Congress to investigate this. It does seem quite bipartisan now. And, and I thought that the hearing was pretty remarkable for the bipartisan interest in the subject. You had Republicans and Democrats largely at this subcommittee hearing asking many of the same types of questions. And it frankly was an opportunity for Republicans in particular to harp on the administration to do more about things like Chinese and Russian hypersonic weapons. So because it's all couched in a national security conversation, it does give members of the opposite party the chance to get in a few digs on national security and foreign policy issues that they don't think the administration is handling particularly well. But I was struck by the way that 
you know, members of both parties seem to think this was very interesting, very important, and we're having a very uh, down to earth, if you pardon the pun, discussion about it. Pun pardoned. <laughs> pun pardoned. <laughs> well, since I just made fun of the idea of cooperating with China on, on UFOs, let us discuss an area in which the US is emphatically not going to cooperate. That's with a China. good segue. Thank you. You know what? Scott makes fun of me for my segues. Now I've been, uh, my segues I have been approved. fun of you when you don't try to segue. That's my objection. When you I don't try to segue. I'm going to have this gold star of Shane's approval every time for my segues. Uh, so <laughs> listeners may have seen there was a, a bit of a kerfuffle around the U.S. commitment uh, or or is it a commitment uh, to defend Taiwan in light of a potential attack by mainland China? This Monday, uh, President Biden was asked if the U.S. would militarily defend Taiwan if it came to that. Biden responded yes. And then when the reporter followed up, he said, that's the commitment we made. So this is a Notable largely because it's a, a step away from the U.S. typical U.S. posture of what's called strategic ambiguity, uh, which I think can best be summarized to lay people as who knows what we'll do. I've seen a lot of international relations folks being very alarmed by this. A lot of international relations folks saying, does this really matter? Everyone kind of knew what the U.S. policy was anyway. The New York Times ran a, a piece that I thought was genuinely, if unintentionally, hysterical, sort of tutting about how, you know, maybe President, this is a quote, maybe President Biden isn't speaking off script after all. Maybe he just doesn't think much of the script. And, you know, it's a good thing that we're, we're concerned about this because we've never had a president in recent memory who spoke off script and created problems for his administration. So now that I've set this conversation <laughs> up around those lines, I'm curious what, what you all think of this. Is this actually a big deal? What should we make of it? Yeah, no, I think it's... Uh, uh... Let me put it this way. I mean, I, I, yes, I think it's a big deal in the sense that like, I mean, it, it's, you know, we kind of let off the discussion. I think, Scott, you put it a really interesting way of like, can the policy survive the president's statements? And it's like the president is the policy, right? Whatever he says is the policy is the policy. He's the unitary executive. executive. Right. But it's a great question, and a great way to frame it, because, you know, at point that, as you described it, you're right. I mean, this is like suddenly this is no longer strategically ambiguous. He just said, yes, we'll defend them if they're attacked by China, which I, I think, I mean, in my conversations over the years with national security folks, I mean, I think that was always the presumption. I guess what I find notable about this is this is in yet another example of how Russia's invasion of Ukraine has just re blown up, reset, recalibrated, however you want to think about it, the architecture of global security. And it's not just confined to Europe, it, it's, it's around the world. And you know, I have had conversations since late February when the war began with intelligence officials from the sort of more working kind of level, staff level, all the way up to the senior levels. And all of them are asking this question of what does Xi Jinping think about what happened in Ukraine? How will Russia's experience and the allies' resolve and response affect his thinking on Taiwan? And I just have to wonder whether or not President Biden sense that there was an opportune moment to maybe assert with greater clarity what the U.S. policy is as long as he is president. Because, you know, I think this administration looks at what happened in Ukraine as an utter disaster for Russia. They're feeling emboldened about the strength of NATO, about the power of alliances. And I think that they feel that maybe now is a moment to put China on notice and say, hey, you know, the same fate may await you if you decide to launch this ill-advised 
military adventure. Lots of reasons why China invading and annexing Taiwan is not the same thing as Russia going after Ukraine from a technological and strategic standpoint. Um, presumably the Chinese military is maybe in a little bit better shape than the Russian military. Who knows? One wonders if Xi Jinping actually knows. But just like to the question of like Biden saying it, like I don't think that's a gaffe. Like I think Joe Biden is as steeped as anyone in Washington in the history of the one China policy of the legislation behind it. And, you know, he famously wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post chastising George H.W. Bush for being, you know, weird about the strategic ambiguity. So if he's saying it now that it's our policy, I have to conclude that he has probably thought uh, quite a bit about that and meant what he said. That very well may be the case. And if he wants to change the policy, that's fine, I guess, right? He is the commander in chief. You know, the president's not always unitary, but when it comes to this, it's, you know, the president's highest powers, as it were. And we can then have a debate on the merits of whether or not the appropriate response for America should be a kind of full-throated defense of Taiwan and totally have that conversation. But then you should clarify that, right? What, what I find strange is not that the president made the statement, but the president made the statement and then the White House then immediately went into some sort of weird spin damage control mode. So which, which leads me to, to, to give two possibilities. One is that they're playing like a, a seven dimensional game of chess where they're trying to preserve some amount of strategic ambiguity by having Biden say the truth and then having there to be enough made up spin from the White House to then give everyone some plausible deniability. So this was this very highly orchestrated thing. And, and the you know, quote unquote clarifications from the White House are actually fake, right? They're kind of fake clarifications. I mean, that's possible. I, I generally am very skeptical of any explanation that involves seven dimensional chess. So what I think is more likely is that he just said what he thought, which again, is not necessarily a problem, except that the whole architecture of the U.S.-China-Taiwan relationship for the last 50 years has been about people not saying exactly what's on their mind, hence the op-ed you know, that Biden famously wrote 20 years ago that you just mentioned. So then the question becomes, well, how did this then happen? I mean, look, you know, put aside the question that like Biden is an older person that's, you know, He's also just the president. He's very busy, right? Like people say all sorts of stuff. Like Obama said gaffes. I mean, everyone says gaffes, right? But presumably he has a bunch of people around him who understand that, you know, multiple months into the Ukraine war and on Biden's trip to Asia, it's almost certain that someone's going to ask him. So presumably there's someone whose job it needs to be, right? Again, just because Biden's a human being to remind him. By the way, Mr. President, just as a reminder, if someone asks you, remember, this is what you have decided you want to say on the matter and to repeat that 13 times a day. Like if that did not happen, then it just seems like a, a huge self-own by the White House. And again, no one's perfect, but Biden's whole gimmick, right? His whole brand is, I don't just say random crap, right? I'm, I'm not a kind of Trumpish like gaff machine. And it is disappointing. I'm not sure that is Joe Biden's brand. <laughs> I love Joe Biden, but I'm not sure that has ever been his brand. He may be a relatively less of a gaffe machine than Donald Trump. but Well, that was not his brand during the Obama administration, for sure, right? Hence that this is a big effing deal with respect to, to Obamacare. 
But that was a big part of his appeal that he was an adult and we were not going to have to start, we were not going to have to keep wondering what the um, formal military policy of the United States was. And so this it just strikes me as like really bad. And he and he or his administration should get a lot of flack for this. But I think that just to interject real quick, that, that theory, while <clears throat> in the abstract, I think is a good one, is premised on the presumption that Jake Sullivan actually tells President Biden what he should say and that President Biden would even listen if he did. And more than that, I think, you know, I, I think we need to take a step back and put it in the context of actual how how actual policy decision making works on this, because the Chinese know that, right? Like we as lawyers tend to think of this in terms of like what Quinta mentioned, the unitary executive, this idea that the president decides and that's really what matters. So it's really the president's view is the only thing that matters on here. And there's a legal authorities context in which that matters, but it does not actually that's not actually true in practice. Right. There's a difference between the president saying I would do this and U.S. policy being saying we would do this. Because if U.S. policy were to say we would intervene, the first thing you would do is you'd have to position U.S. military forces to effectively be able to intervene to defend Taiwan from China. We don't really do that right now. We do it to have the option to intervene, to be able to put some military assets potentially into play, be able to resupply Taiwan, but we're not in a position to maximize our ability to defend Taiwan from a potential Chinese invasion. And partially that's because we're not 100% clear on whether that's our policy or not, right? The other thing you would do if you were particularly Joe Biden, hopefully, if you're somebody who supposedly believes in presidential limits on authority and particularly in the war powers context, as he, as he claims to do, although, you know, record on that it's a little bit mixed, for being honest, you would probably get congressional authorization because going to war to defend Taiwan over China is just about the only type of conflict that the executive branch has said the president can't launch unilaterally over the last 30 years, right? Um, because it's not in self-defense and it's clearly a major war with an, an enemy major power. But there hasn't really been an effort to get congressional authorization. There's always this idea that well, we don't know exactly what we're going to do yet. So that's a conversation we'll have at a later date. So I think it's not, I think it's significant that the administration is saying, meaning not the president, the, the broader White House saying this policy hasn't changed because it means the posture of the broader governmental apparatus isn't going to change in regards to Taiwan. What it does when Biden says things like this is it gives a little window that when it comes to him, how he's going to weigh evidence when advisors come to him and some say, oh, no, we need to go to war China. Others say, no, we don't. We shouldn't be doing that. He has to make a decision. It hints at where he may lean. That's notable. That's significant, but it's not the same as undermining the policy entirely. The policy still plays a role there, I think. And that's why the broader China policy community is really wedded to it. Why is Biden willing to push this? I mean, I think he may see a little strategic edge about saying, I look, get to look a little worse, uh, a little harder on China. Maybe that's for domestic political audiences. Maybe he thinks that actually matters for the Chinese. I kind of doubt the latter. I think it may be more for the former, honestly. And beyond that, like, I kind of strongly suspect he had a gaffe once, didn't have any negative consequences, got a little bit of, frankly, if you remember the first time this happened, he actually got some compliments in the media. People were like, oh, finally, somebody's getting rid of this ambiguous policy, speaking straight on China, thank goodness. And I think he keeps coming back to that water because it kind of worked out for him once or twice. And that's kind of how, like, frankly, human beings stumble through policymaking and decision making. And presidents in the end are just human beings and come back on these things. I, I strongly doubt his official talking points said to say things like this. I think he made a half deliberate choice, but it's a lot of domestic political reasons, a lot of personal reasons, a lot of strategic reasons. But it's different from changing actual U.S. policy. Um, and I think that's a distinction worth bearing in mind. It reminds me a great deal of the hubbub over when he, when Biden, uh, during a, a speech said that Putin could not remain in power, uh, which caused a, a great deal of dismay among scholars of international relations and of Russia, because, of course, you know, that's potentially backing Putin into a position where 
uh, winning the war in Ukraine as a sort of existential question for his regime, which is not a good place for for anyone to be. And I would agree that I don't think it was necessarily a wise thing to say, but I also think that, you know, what was that? That was a month or two ago. Maybe I'm missing something. It doesn't seem to have substantially changed the posture of the Russian government or of the U.S. government in relation to what's going on in in Ukraine right now. So I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I sort of feel like we're all primed to jump on these kinds of statements and inconsistencies because of what happened under the Trump administration when Trump would make statements like this and it would, you know, jerk policy around in 15 different directions and everything would be hopelessly upended. And it kind of feels like, you know, I'm not saying that it doesn't have an effect um, or that it might not have an effect, but it, it feels a little bit like a tempest in a teapot to me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers, and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report, and it includes 15 more data brokers, with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend 
delete me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress as I do every time that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Quinta and Scott, I mean, I, I take what you're saying, and, and I think descriptively you are correct, right, in that we're seeing this pattern of the president say things that are kind of aggressive and maybe because they're taken out of context or just they are aggressive and it doesn't really have any impact on policy. And so then the question is, well, so no big deal. But doesn't that then contribute to the devaluing of presidential rhetoric, right? I mean, don't do we want to be in a situation where we just don't care what the president says because, well, unless there's been some official bureaucratic decision or, you know, the aircraft carrier has been rerouted to some, you know, part of the South China Sea, you know, the president is just some uh, guy that gets up and, and you know, says what he wants. Th that to me seems to squander actually one of the president's most powerful tools, which is in fact the bully pulpit. So I, I mean, I agree with you. I just, I just think that the equilibrium this is driving towards is not necessarily such a good one. I mean, theoretically, sure. But unfortunately, you know, out of such a crooked, the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made, Alan. Like there's, there's never been a president who was perfectly consistent. And so I, I feel comfortable acknowledging that, you know, we live in a fallen world. Sweet, sweet Emmanuel Kant reference. Nice. Two years ago, we were all very happy that when the president said something, it didn't immediately change U.S. policy. And I, I, I think it's okay to continue to be happy about that. 
just one last observation for me on this. I mean, I, I, you know, as being the sort of, you know, the, the professional observer, I mean, when something like this happens, I'm always asking the question, like, what does this tell us about the way this administration operates and, and how decisions are made? And, you know, I'm always just reminded that, you know, Joe Biden was the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. He was vice president for eight years. Uh, you know, he is up there in years. And as our birthday boy knows, the further you go on, the more set in your ways you tend to be, right? Biden's definitely more coherent than I am on most days. Uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, than all of us. He, he knows exactly what the policy is. I just want, I mean, I think that Joe Biden obviously has a very articulated view of the world. And I mean, you, I think you can look at the decision to pull out of Afghanistan and the way he basically, you know, the response when everyone said, you know, oh, it's a disaster. He's like, what'd you expect? Quit your bitching and go to bed. I mean, it was kind of like that. He's been wanting to get out of Afghanistan for a very long time. He was going to do it. And I think that probably he's always felt that, of course, we've become to, to Taiwan's aid and he's the president now. But Galen, kind of bringing it back to your point about like, how does the White House coordinate around these things? I just feel like generally not very much. I mean, and the more I kind of observe these things, which is not to say that like it's a disjointed policy apparatus that doesn't know its ass from its elbow. I don't think that's at all true. But I think that you have a situation here where this president, and he's not unique in this respect and not even recently, um, just has his views and articulates them. And the staff kind of like will mobilize around that as it needs to. And sometimes they're coordinated in advance and maybe sometimes they're not. I do think we should remember, too, that having been a senator for most of his political career, he is used to being in a small office in which he is staffed and people kind of just like manage this for him. Now, he was in the White House for eight years. I'm not saying that he doesn't know how this how to operate on a presidential level, and it is different. But I just think you're seeing a lot of the way that the sausage gets made in the Biden White House. And a lot of it is the president saying what he thinks and, you know, and and the staff kind of having to sometimes clean it up when it's genuinely gone a little too far, but for the most part, just kind of say like, okay, I guess that's the policy now. Let's just kind of like shimmy in behind it and make sure that we're all, uh, you know, rowing in the same direction. I want to put just a little bit more strategic context around this that could come into play. I don't know enough, and I don't think anybody in the public knows enough about exactly how this comes in, but just something to think about in this context. If President Biden or those advisors were thinking about using this strategically, this is one of several gauges you can use to turn up different types of pressure on Xi Jinping, the Chinese government at this point. And you have to bear in mind that the most probably important set of engagements they are having with China right now from a bipartisan policy perspective, frankly, has to do with Ukraine and support for Russia on a variety of economic and military measures. We know there have been a lot of ongoing conversations about what support China is willing to support to Russia, what support it isn't willing to extend to Russia, and that that's been a point of you know potential tension more, some already and potentially more in the future if China were ever to ratchet up the extent of support it'd be willing to give. You know, I, it's possible at least, again, if we think these are strategic actors, that this may have a bearing on those negotiations, which is far, mostly happen behind closed door. I don't have a good sense of the state of them. I don't think most of us really do. You know, maybe this is a place where they think that China, because they are heading into a major party conference later this year that's very important to show a strong sign of support for Xi Jinping because he's dealing with a very difficult domestic COVID situation that has him under a lot of domestic pressure. Uh, at least a lot of China experts I've talked to recently on the Lawfare podcast elsewhere have posited that they actually want to keep things kind of quiet and try and focus on domestic resolving domestic issues so they can go into as strong a posture as possible for that meeting in the latter half of 2022. I can't remember exactly when. I don't know if that's true or not. Ask a real China expert on that. But if that's true, then frankly, ratcheting up Taiwan pressure 
could be a way to put more pressure on them saying, let's not get things started around Russia and Ukraine because we have other places to make things more difficult for you and you're vulnerable in this moment. I, I think we have to think about there is this nexus between Taiwan and Ukraine, all these other issues in that regard. And right now, Taiwan really like isn't clearly the, the the top priority, even though it is a major policy priority and it's a major point of tension in a potential superpower conflict, because it's a situation where there's a lot of equilibrium. We've seen a lot of tumult around Taiwan over the years, and it hasn't fundamentally changed the circumstances. And it may be an area where they're willing to ratchet up the heat a little bit to try and get results in another domain that's higher priority right now. And to me, that's Ukraine slash Russia. Well, speaking about global threats to democracy, let us go to CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Committee's annual meeting, which is taking place in Texas later this year, if I recall correctly, in August is the formal CPAC conference, but they are having a corollary conference, a companion conference as we speak. I think it's still ongoing, or at least they did earlier this week in Hungary, a country that has been come under over the last 10 years, immense criticism for the actions of Prime Minister Viktor Orban and his political cadre and co-followers who have been implementing a very broad array of liberal, illiberal reforms that not only solidify their own hold on the country, um, but also target LGBTQ people for harassment, for discrimination, target a variety of other people, roll back a lot of civil liberties and legal rights, freedom of the press, uh, many other issues that are held very dear by many in Europe in particular, uh, particularly relevant for Hungary's case, and that going and inviting Viktor Orban, as they appear to have done for this conference, to make an opening set of remarks is a pretty dramatic move for CPAC. And in those remarks, we heard Viktor Orban say publicly that he sees what's happening with CPAC and with American conservatives, at least a particular strain of American conservatism, uh, I would say the one associated with Donald Trump, although not exclusively the one associated with Donald Trump, is a part of a global movement with his own movement. And says that we, we meaning people in that movement, need to build a collaborative transnational effort to advance what he phrased as kind of pushing back on a global liberalism agenda uh, that people are advancing on a variety of fronts in different countries around the world. It is not a terribly surprising move, I think, for people who have been following the ties between these groups for a long time, but it is shocking for how open and out in the public it is, and a pretty dramatic step for the Republican, many members of the Republican Party against CPAC is independent, but nonetheless, there's a lot of overlap there. And there's a lot of people associated with particularly the Trump wing of the Republican Party participating in this conference. It is a pretty dramatic step for them to be sharing a stage with Viktor Orban. Quinto, when I turn to you first on this, what is your kind of gut reaction about what this sort of move means? What's motivating it on the domestic American political side? And I guess on the Hungarian side, I think that's a little bit easier because it certainly gives them a much bigger stage than they might have otherwise, which has advantages for them. But what's driving this sort of collaboration and where do we think it might lead? So I'll point before I begin to two really interesting pieces uh, that I think are useful in understanding this. Um, Zach Beecham in, in Vox has written about what he calls uh, the American Orbanism of uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And Ishan Tharoor in The Post uh, has a three-part series on the sort of links between Orban and the modern American right. And I think what they both tease out uh, very well is how... Hungary and the sort of American, the mind of a certain uh, type of person on the American right has become a, a model of what the U.S. could be if it were given the chance. It's a environment that is 
explicitly illiberal um, in in Orban's own words. It is a place that has been pursuing a sort of uh, aggressively socially conservative policy in many different ways, um, including, among other things, uh, cutting down on LGBT rights, forcing out uh, universities. Um, So I think there's a a sort of appeal in Hungary if you're on the kind of Trumpist right where you look at that and you can say, that's what I would want to do if I were in power, right? I wouldn't just be, you know, tweeting angry things at, you know, leftist university professors who I dislike. I want to actually run them out of the country, which I think is precisely why it's concerning um, that it is this kind of fantasy of power. And I think it's also, and, and Beecham and Vox has written about this, it's also a fantasy of, you know, racial and ethnic purity, that Orban has been very explicit about this idea that, you know, he he wants more Hungarians and he wants people who are not ethnically Hungarian out. And interestingly, that Orban, you know, has made these statements even in the wake of the, the Buffalo shooting, uh, sort of very, very clearly sounding in at least what in the United States we would describe as great replacement theory. So... I think it is frightening for that reason. Um, I do think that Beecham and and uh, Thoreau both make this argument that DeSantis is kind of the the heir of what we might call American Orbanism in a in a very different way than Trump is. It's much more socially conservative. It's much more focused at leveraging authoritarianism in a, a, a socially conservative direction as opposed to Trump, which I would describe as more just kind of. Uh, leveraging authoritarianism for authoritarianism's sake. Um, And as you say, Scott, you know, this has been building for quite a while. It's not new. I do think the decision by CPAC to, you know, hold this session in Budapest and have Orban actually on the stage kind of makes extremely clear what the stakes are. But knowing what the stakes are is a completely different question than, you know, what we're going to do about that. And I do think that this uh, strain in the Republican Party poses a serious risk. Yeah, just to footstomp what Quinta is saying there, too, I think that because CPAC has historically been a bit of a carnival show, or as Charlie Sykes likes to say, it's like the Star Wars bar cantina scene, right? It's sort of this like freakish motley crew of people. <laughs> and because it's not really connected to the, GO, the, the, the Republican Party per se, it's tempting to dismiss what is going on in Hungary as yet again some kind of other weird sideshow and some sort of kind of like, you know, comic con con. But I think that what what, what the Quintus saying is so important is that Orban presents a vision of what is possible when you have, I'll say, competent executive leadership, right? How many times did we say through the four years of the Trump administration that one of the reasons, one of these sort of the uh, the guardrails against him doing more damage was the fact that he was so incompetent in the way he ran the government and didn't understand at all how the presidency seemed to work. And one of the great fears, of course, is that in a second Trump administration, this time he would have figured out how to do it and would just appoint people who knew how to pull the levers. Well, in Hungary, you have what you know a competent, functioning, executive, illiberal authority looks like. And I think that even if CPAC attendees couldn't quite articulate it that way, they certainly sense it, right? And they can see it. And, and I think that, so that's one reason it's, it's concerning. And also the fact that this is clearly demonstrating that this is not a solely American phenomenon. 
that this is something that has transnational appeal. And we don't have time to go into all of the, you know, Europe's experiences with the far right, but they are instructive as ours are to them as it also. Yeah, like it's tempting to dismiss it as, you know, there goes crazy CPAC again. Uh, but no, I think it's actually far more significant and telling about where the conservative movement is going, which, by the way, may not be where the professional GOP class or even the people running the Republican National Committee would hope that it would go. Yeah, I, I agree with everything that that's been said. I, I continue to think that this story is really being undercovered. I mean, I, it is really, I think, just remarkable that CPAC, which again, is not the Republican Party, but whatever, is de facto the kind of prime ideological leader within the modern conservative movement, went to Hungary of all places, and is, is just making no pretense of trying to separate itself at all from the authoritarianism of someone like Viktor Orban. And they had Trump video conference in and, and, you know, embarrassingly fawn over how great Orban was and how he endorsed Orban, which is again, such a bizarre thing for an American president to endorse a foreign leader, et cetera, et cetera. You know, to, to me, I think what is important is to is to keep two threads of criticism separate, right? So there's there's one thread of criticism which focuses on the specific regressive social conservative policies in Hungary, right? So this is, for example, critiques of the treatment of LGBTQ people, um, critiques of the treatment of immigrants, um, all of which are, I think, totally fair critiques, obviously. But those are separate, I think, um, though they're related. But in, in an important way, they are separate from the underlying authoritarianism and the dismantling of civil society, of a competitive party process, of a you know robust free media. And, and I think that you know, although it's totally fine to criticize both of those, I think that the focus nevertheless has to be on the latter because it is the, I think, democratic process, the preservation of the institutions that allow societies to work through their controversial social issues that is of the most importance to preserve. So again, it's totally, I think, fair to criticize Hungary on you know, gay rights issues, immigrant issues, and it's totally fair to criticize CPAC for seeming to embrace those. But I think that should be thought of as separate from the fact that not only is CPAC showing its profound social conservatism, but in the process, it is also showing its contempt for the democratic institutions that in a pluralistic society ought to be empowered to work through those in some way. I'm going to put forward a thesis that I think is really unpopular with people of like a, not even on the left necessarily, but of a, who are critical of kind of this thread of the Republican party that seems to be kind of returning and having a little bit of a post-Trump resurgence in the lead up to 2022. But I'm going to put it out there anyway, which I think is probably a fundamentally really bad thing for the Republican party that they're getting tied into these sorts of global elements. I think we see people pulled in that direction because we have our a primary based system. Uh, you know, Republicans kind of reformed the primary system a little bit after 2016, but not that much. Um, so there's still the system where you have a your most conservative elements of your party, the most politically active, who tend to be the most ideologically motivated, are the ones who select your candidates that have to go before you know regional or national election, whatever level election we're talking about. And you know ties like this really cut at issues that are to the disadvantage of Republicans moving forward. I mean, there was that famous like autopsy that happened after the 2012 election, right? Which basically said, look, in the next 20 years, Republicans have to find a way to make 
you know, reach out to, you know, different minority groups, hit differently on slightly different social issues, hit different age groups and demographics, hit women better, precisely because those demographics are going to play a much bigger part of the electorate in the coming years. Instead, we saw Donald Trump turn it in a different direction, almost the exact opposite direction, but still be able to stir up enough of a contingent of voters from people who are disgruntled, disenfranchised, who bought into certain uh, visions that was able to propel him to victory in 2016. Maybe not majority vote, but but an electoral victory, right? And that still is a very powerful force in Republican primaries. There's a lot of draw in like red parts of the country. Uh, but I got to think when you're still looking at a demographic shift that say that you're going to have, I think it was 34% of the electorate in 2020 was people who were, you know, members of religious minor, uh, pardon me, racial minorities, or were people under 35, white people under 35 were college educated, basically demographics that tend to lean heavily towards Democratic Party or have more liberal social ideas. And that that proportion is going to go up, I think it was to 38% in 2024 and go higher than that and eventually be a majority of the electorate in 2040. I think these are numbers, if I recall correctly, that our colleagues at the Brookings Institution have, have been putting together and tracking the last few years. Like, it just seems like a bad idea to so publicly tie yourself to these kind of regressive ideas that aren't popular nationally at a national level. Maybe they sell in certain polities, but I just have trouble seeing this being a long-term strategy for success. Short-term, it might be, but we're still understanding a big generational change demographically on a lot of other fronts. And the little forays that you see kind of Trumpy Republicans making with like Hispanic voters that like that they were more successful with in 2020 than people anticipated other little forays. I'm just not sure this really balance out in the long run, but I'm curious what other think. I disagree with both of you. I think for the same reason, I do think that there is a distinction between criticizing Fidesz and Orbanism for its explicitly anti-democracy or anti-liberal democracy approach and criticizing it for its policies that said, I think that that line is a lot fuzzier than uh, than Alan that you've prevented it. And I actually think that Scott's description um, and why I disagree with that is, explains why. If you think of this as a movement where the goal is explicitly authoritarian to take and to hold on to power to allow the continued political power of a certain kind of person, of group, to the exclusion of others, then it doesn't matter what the demographics look like because you can hold on to power by limiting the extent to which democracy can push you out. I also, I do think frankly that the, uh, the role of non-white and, and non-white people and, and white women voting for, you know, explicitly Trump Republic, Trumpist Republican candidates is something that we do need to, to take seriously. But Another aspect of this is that I think that, you know, when, when you look at what Orban is selling, I don't think that you can neatly disaggregate the extent to which it is anti-democratic and the extent to which it is far right. It is a nationalist program, right? And, and part of that is saying, I embody the nation. I speak for the people which is a different thing than how the people might speak for themselves, however you conceptualize the people. It's a vision of power that is focused on, like I said, keeping a particular group in power and keeping other groups out of power and exerting the power of the state over them in as aggressive and visible a way as possible. So for example, Hungary is just absolutely execrable treatment of immigrants. For DeSantis, I would say, you know, the bill that he signed, making it legal to hit protesters with your car, 
that is, I would say, uh, it's anti-democratic, it's anti-protest, and it's a, it's a way of giving a certain group of people the sort of imprimatur of the state to exert violence on another group. So I don't think that these two things are, are quite as easy to pull apart. Um, now, if the question is a, a strategic question of what is the stronger critique to be made from an American perspective to move people away from that kind of ideology, maybe, yes, you should focus on the sort of anti-democratic side of the spectrum. But I do think that this is woven together and needs to be understood as, as something that is woven together. Um, and that, I would argue, is why it's particularly dangerous. All right. Well, unfortunately, we are going to have to leave the discussion there, but this would not be rational security if we did not give you some object lessons to ponder on until we are able to get back in your ear holes next week. Quinta, let me turn it over to you to get us started. Well, I, I have a dilemma because I was going to choose my lesson based on other people's lessons. Do we want do we want like a cheerful, uplifting lesson or a grim, sad lesson? We always want a cheerful, uplifting <laughs> okay. lesson. We want, no, no. You're our, you're our obligated grim, dark Oh my God! I always want okay. happy Quinta. <laughs> All right. I want metal Quinta to share. With us. I want you to bite the head off a pigeon and then <laughs> listen into the mic. Okay. Uh, by popular request, I'm going to do a less depressing lesson. Um, it is a book recommendation, or rather, a recommendation for a series of books. So, because everything is awful, I have been trying to. Find uh, comfort and joy in uh, in art, and returned to a series of books which I loved very dearly in my childhood and teens, and haven't read for a long time. They are uh, Terry Pratchett's Discworld series. I would argue one of the best series of books ever written, bar none. Um, you know, when you when you go back and read something that you read as like a kid or a teenager, I think there's always a bit of anxiety of like, is this really as good as I remembered it, or am I going to ruin it by looking at it again? I would say I think it holds up. I'm only on the watch series so far. I've gotten through two. So, you know, maybe it falls off a cliff after that. But it is really lovely to, you know, return to these books that meant a great deal to me. I would highly recommend them to anybody who is looking for something that is, I would say, funny, but has a lot to say. And there is a a particular series, which I am sort of series within the series, which I am the biggest fan of, which are the watch books, which are kind of a take on detective novels, highly recommended, definitely have, you know, given me some joy in a pretty bleak time recently. I feel like that Quinta grew up reading Discworld tells us a huge amount about Quinta. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's like an essential aspect to figure out the whole story, Quinta Jurassic story. Those books built my moral compass, man. I have to read these books now. Shit, they're so good. Oh they're God. so good. Okay. They're really good. Qu Quinta, did you, did you as a child convince yourself that you could see that color, that special color that they can only see in, in this world? No, no, no. So I think that the, the, one, the initial ones that are like more kind of satire of like high fantasy, like D&D &D stuff are not as good. I'm more partial to the later ones. So I was, I was less concerned with the special color. <laughs> Discworld, yeah. Discworld deep cuts. There's nothing to satirize about D&D, guys. Whatever, it's fine. <laughs> Alan, why don't I hand it over to you? <laughs> so I feel like I feel like we've all inherited a little bit of Shane Harris energy um, in this second incarnation of Rational Security. And, and my part of that has been... I was wondering uh, where it went. Yeah, has been recommender of uh, spy thrillers. 
So uh, my uh, object lesson is the Apple TV Plus show Slow yes. Horses, which is fantastic. It is a kind of classic uh, British spy spy drama, but the, the gimmick is that it's actually about a bunch of uh, MI5 misfits, basically kind of washed up spies who are sent to some crappy, unheated, old falling down building somewhere in London. <laughs> Uh, kind of as the auxiliary punishment branch, yeah, in Slough, uh, and and have to, but of course, get pulled into a bunch of high drama. It's really, it's excellent. Um, the you know, acting is wonderful. Kristen Scott Thomas is wonderful. Um, Gary Oldman, who plays the head of this, is so good. it's a, it's just it's amazing. You 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 sort of get a feel that they went to Gary and they said, Mister Oldman, we'd like you to play yourself but you don't give an F like you, you just don't give it. And he's like, I got it guys. I'm Gary on Oldman it. doesn't give an F. That's and easy. it is, it is excellent. It is, uh, it's only one season, but I think it's going to be, I think it's renewed. So I think it's going to come back um, at some point. Uh, really excellent. Slow horses on Apple TV plus. It is coming back too. Cause this is, it's this six, the next six episodes are already done and they just haven't been released yet. Yes. It's so good. So good. Well, for my object lesson, uh, I will also be taking a lot of inspiration from Shane Harris and Shane Harris' interests uh, because I am on vacation at a beach vacation, which means that I, as a very fair-skinned, red-haired person, means that a lot of my time on the beach is spent huddling for fear of my life underneath an umbrella in a black hoodie, trying desperately to avoid the sun uh, and reading. Uh, and so this is the rare occasion where I get to just plow through books I've had on my queue for a long time. So I'm reading a bunch of them. I have Emily St. John Mandel's book that Alan recommended the other week on my queue and my Kindle. I haven't gotten to it quite yet. Um, I have Anna Leckie's Ancillary Justice, but not, I read Ancillary Justice, it's the two other sequels in that book that are phenomenal. Um, but I'm going to recommend one with a little bit of a caveat, uh, which is Project Hail Mary, which is Andy Weir's book. There's a guy who wrote The Martian a few years ago. It is a really entertaining read. You do not read this book if you're looking for a super well-written book. It is, it is, the prose is like a little bit rough at times. It reads like a little bit like an action movie uh, or like a Michael Scott screenplay that somebody found at the office at moments. Uh, meaning no offense, I, I really enjoy the book and I'm wholeheartedly recommending it. What's brilliant about it is just his ability to build all this like, but as far as I can tell is real science into the story and give this really compelling narrative of what is really seems extreme sci-fi events uh, that are be well beyond pale and actually ground it in things that seem very approachable uh, and real from a scientific perspective. And I really, really enjoy that type of science fiction or hard-ish science fiction, I think people call it. Um, so for that reason, I am really, really enjoying it and strongly recommend it. There's a movie coming out with Ryan Gosling, um, who seems way too handsome to pull off the role, but that's fine. And we'll see how it goes. But so I recommend that for anybody who really is uh, looking for a little hard sci-fi. The key is to aggressively skip through the parts that aren't very well written. You have to just be willing that to turn really pages quickly. This is really by faint praise. Oh, it's I read it. I read it in twelve hours and stayed up half the night. Total shit. It's Couldn't really it good. Exactly. <laughs> I feel that way about so much sci-fi. Sci-fi now is like branched between like literary sci-fi, which is a beautiful read, but doesn't really try that hard on the science fiction part, <laughs> where you're like, this could just be a fantasy novel. Basically, it's like we don't really dig into science, and then like the hard science part, but which is just not that super readable, and it's kind of a shame. But that's okay. We're gonna someday we're gonna bleed those two together. It's the the hard versus soft sci-fi debate begins. Fight. fight Finally, fight. <laughs> what we've been waiting for. Shane, why don't you bring us home? Yes, I will. Uh, <clears throat> I have an object lesson already picked out, but you also reminded me, Alan, that um, Tehran season two is on Apple TV. 
I think I, I think I must have talked about Tehran season one on the podcast at some point, but check that out if you have not. It's from the makers of Falda. It's great. But my object lesson uh, is a book that is coming out at the end of this month by a journalist who I've known for a long time, old friend of mine, James Kerchick, Jamie, to those who know him. It's called Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. Um, Jamie has been working on this book for the better part of a decade, and it is a thick tome, and it is filled with all kinds of fascinating stories about gay life in the nation's capital going back many, many decades. But of special interest to rational security readers is a lot of it focuses on uh, sort of gays in the intelligence community, in the military, in the world of espionage. Part of his thesis is that in Washington, secrecy is currency and that power derives from the ability to have secrets and to know things that others don't. And he draws these wonderful parallels between people working in the intelligence community and secret worlds and gay people who have to live in sort of alternate secret realities of their own because they can't be out. Uh, And he just has just, I won't ruin the the book because it's so much of it just reads like great episodic fiction. You can kind of dip in and out of the book into different administrations. There is a through line to it, but there are these great stories within, but you get into uh, the, uh, the Alger Hiss affair. Uh, He gets into all kinds of stories, uh, a fascinating story I had no idea about, about a young political operative who basically engineers the election of Dwight Eisenhower and then is never allowed to serve in his administration because J. Edgar Hoover threatens to out him. Uh, and he is now a footnote in history. It's astonishing. But just really great tales of intrigue, uh, uh, foreign affairs, but yet set against this uh, sort of history of Washington and its secret history told through the lives of, of gay people and lesbians throughout the past 70 or so years. Uh, so check it out. Uh, it's got some like killer blurbs, I have to say, on the cover. Let me see if I can find the one that, hold on, from, here it is. Not since Robert Caro's years of Lyndon Johnson have I been so riveted by a work of history, George Stephanopoulos. <laughs> I mean, that's a better blurb than the one that Scott gave. <laughs> Jim Comey's it's a cookbook it's a cookbook <laughs> I didn't quite carry it today hard science fiction it is that but it's definitely worth your checking out and uh, yeah and I hope to interview Jamie on the Chatter podcast at some point so listen for that too uh, that, that sounds fantastic I saw I had seen that book popped up on my radar a couple weeks ago it seemed very interesting so I'm excited to yeah. hear that you uh, it has the Shane Harris say yeah, seal I dig of it approval. thumbs up excellent well, sadly, that is all the time we have left for today. But remember that Rational Security 2.0 is like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. Follow us on Twitter at RATL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links and past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other podcast series, including our daily Lawfare podcast and our new special series on the programmatic failures that led us to leave so many allies behind Afghanistan entitled, appropriately, allies and be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of lawfare on patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits our audio engineer and producer this week was kara shillin of goat rodeo and our music as always was performed by sophia yan and we are once again edited by the wonderful jen patcha howell on behalf of my co-host Quintel allen and our special guest host emeritus shane harris i am scott r anderson and we will talk to you next week until then goodbye Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.